The problem of evil. Uh, the problem of evil is a long-standing philosophical religious question. Very long-standing. Uh, it basically goes like this, in my own words. How can there be an omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God and, at the same time, evil and suffering in the world that he created? How can there be an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God and, at the same time, How can there be evil and suffering in the world that he created? And again, this is a long-standing religious philosophical question. For some, the problem of evil is uh, intellectual, and it goes something like this. I'm stealing from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. For some, it's intellectual, and it goes like this. God might be either all-powerful, but not good enough to end evil and suffering. Or else, he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible could not exist. That is an intellectual take on the problem of evil in a very anecdotal form. For others, the problem of evil is very personal. And maybe that's what it is for you tonight. It goes something like this. Again, anecdotally, I won't believe in a God who allows suffering. Even if he, she, or it exists, I will not believe in a God who allows suffering. Maybe God does exist. Maybe not. But if he does, he cannot be trusted. Again, anecdotally, but you hear the personal take on the problem of evil there. C.S. Lewis dealt... uh, C.S. Lewis was a great intellectual, and he, I'm sure, in many places, dealt with the problem of evil on an intellectual level. But he also dealt with it on a very personal level. In his work, A Grief Observed, the grief that he is observing in that work was the slow and painful death of his wife uh, to cancer. And in the middle of that book, he says this. It's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, at least one of the ones that sticks out to me regularly. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. This is what we find tonight as we come to Revelation 6 and 7. What we find tonight is that the Bible and God is not unconcerned with the problem of evil. He is not unconcerned with that question. And as we begin, as we continue to make our way through the book of Revelation, as we begin to see with the eyes that John sees, we see heaven and earth colliding. Right? And what I mean, but what we mean by that as we look through this semester is that we, as we go along with John, we are now getting a new vision of seeing earthly realities through the lens of a spiritual and ultimate reality. And here tonight in Revelation 6, again, it hits home very vividly and very personally. Here it is. If Revelation 4 and 5 are true, that we've looked at the last two weeks, with all their splendor and with all their beauty, the throne room of God adorned with the most beautiful sights that you could ever see, and the Lamb at the center of it all, redeeming and ransoming a people from God from every language, tribe, tongue, and nation. If that is true, then what does it mean that my life in this world is still broken? That is what John's original readers and hearers were wondering. 
If Revelation 4 and 5 are true, what does it mean for me that my life in this world is still marred by sin and death and destruction? And that is what brings us here to Revelation 6. So let's look at this and read. Let me pray before we do. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open it to us. You are the one worthy. You are the one worthy. You are the one that has promised to give us your spirit that we may hear, that we may know, that we may see. Would you do that tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read chapter 6 and read up to verse 4 of chapter 7. So read here with me, starting Revelation 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were told each, sorry, then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. No wind might blow on the earth or sea against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God and on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand together 
Again, we're looking at six and seven tonight, and I wanted to have—I wanted you to have seven there so you could see it when I make mention of it. I want to just consider two things with you tonight. First, I want to consider suffering, and then I want to consider sealing. Suffering and sealing. Suffering. Chapter six, what the seals in chapter six are about, are about the suffering of this world. It's about how do we... As the people of God, especially the people of God ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, how do we process suffering and brokenness and brokenness, brokenness in the world? So here we go. You know, you get to verse, you get to chapter six, and we start reading as we keep going. You're kind of thinking to yourself, right? Finally, all like the doomsday stuff that I heard Revelation was about, right? I mean, you're feeling like, oh, we're getting into the good stuff tonight. Who thought that? Don't raise your hand. Anyway. And then, you know, in verse 14 of chapter 7. You can look at it for yourself. It talks about those who are coming out of the great tribulation, quote unquote, right? But again, over and over, week after week, I will keep reminding you this. How do we understand the context into which John is writing? It's a real letter written to real churches with real people living real lives, with real problems, with real struggles, and with real questions, and with real doubts, And so here's the question for you tonight. Do you finally want some chronology? I'll give you some. Go with me here. Chapter 4, we saw that at the center of the universe is an occupied throne, occupied by the maker of heaven and earth himself. God, the picture there that we see is that God is sovereign over the entire cosmos. Chapter 5, though, we saw that the cosmos was in crisis, but it's contained in a scroll, sealed with seven seals, was God's purpose and will for all of history. But no one was found worthy enough to open that scroll. But then John is told, right, weep no more, there is one worthy, and he's worthy because he's conquered and he will open the seals of the scroll. Now, we get to catch chapter 6 and what's happening. The seals are being opened. Okay? Revelation 5, 5. We read that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. He has conquered so that... He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse uh, Revelation 5, 9, we read, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. So what is the chronology here? When, when does the opening of the seals happen? When the lion conquers. How did the lion conquer? By being slain as a lamb. When was the lamb slain? At Calvary, outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago. We read at the end of chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea, Jesus himself says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, just As I have also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. So, again, when does this happen? Now. Now. And the answer has been now for 2,000 years. Follow me. So again, 
What is John inviting us to see? This is what John's inviting us to see. He's inviting us to see heaven and earth colliding to give us a divine perspective on our worlds and our suffering. That's chapter 6. Chapter 6, the purpose is for us to have a divine perspective on our and our world's suffering in the here and the now. Just as much as the here and now includes the center of the universe being centered around an occupied throne. Just as here and now the center of the universe has a lamb who was slain for God's people. Just as that now the seals have been opened and the horses have gone forth. But here it is. This is the biggest, the the chronology of this is not the biggest part of this. What is the most, what is the part of this that made you the most uneasy? Think about this question. The four horsemen, where did they get their powers? We read, for each one, their power was given to them. From where? The throne. So at the outset, what we're being told is this. The divine perspective on our suffering and our world's suffering is that it is completely under the control of God. Not that God is doing it, didn't say that, but that it is completely under the control of the throne and of the land. Now look, there is nothing easy, there is nothing easy about claiming or explaining God's sovereignty over all things, even suffering and evil in this world. There's nothing easy. There's no logical argument that I could stand up and make for three, four, five hours or days that would ever help you at all help that fit into any neat category because there is no neat category that exists for that. But what the Bible does tell us is that even the suffering and brokenness of this world is completely under the dominion of the king of the universe. And here it is. And again, I am not attempting nor will I attempt to solve the problem of evil for you because I don't think it's necessarily something we solve. And it's not wrong to have the philosophical question of the problem of evil. That's why it's been a question for so long. But I will make this statement. You cannot live without God's sovereignty over suffering. You cannot live without God's sovereignty over suffering. And I make this point to say this. The problem of evil is not a theistic problem. It's not just a problem for those people that believe in God or a God, okay? The theistic problem of evil goes like this, and we've already mentioned it before. How can a powerful God have any good reason for allowing suffering? That's the theistic problem of evil. How can a good and powerful and loving God have any good reason for allowing evil? There's, let me say it again, there is nothing wrong with that question. If that is a question you wrestle with, if that's a, wrestle, a question you struggle with, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing condemning you for having that question. It is a hard question to deal with. But here's the atheistic problem of evil. evil. The atheistic problem of evil, I would suggest to you, is actually harder. Because the atheistic problem of evil goes like this. How can I process or deal with suffering if there is absolutely no reason for it? How 
Can I deal or process suffering if there is no reason for it? Why go help kids prepare for the SAT? Why go to another country to help people make clean water? Why do any of these things if there is absolutely no reason for suffering? It just kind of is what it is. And so I have a would you rather. We're not going to like talk about it, but would you rather? I think it's a question worth asking. Would you rather live in a world where you don't know exactly God's purposes for suffering, but you do know that he has purposes? Or would you rather live in a world where suffering has no reason? It just is. At the least... At the least, again, I'm not solving the problem of evil for you tonight. I don't pretend to be able to do that. But at the least, and there's much more that I could say, at the least, there is comfort in knowing that suffering is at the end of God's leash. And that no matter what happens, the answer cannot be, no matter what you have brought into this room tonight, your fears or your experiences, the answer cannot be that God is not in control. The Bible has not left room for that. The answer cannot be that God is not in control. So much more we could say, but hopefully that's enough. I want you to look at the horsemen themselves. Look at the four horsemen with me themselves. This is a weird image for us, right? Um, Okay, there's four horses and they're going out into the earth and this is kind of weird, right? But again, what kind of images are we looking at in Revelation? Bible images. Y'all are listening. This is great. Bible images, right? These are almost exactly the same as four chariot horses that we read about in Zechariah chapter 6 in the Old Testament. What is, uh, what is most, what, I don't know how familiar you are with military statues of military war heroes uh, in our country, but even in the world really. What are most military war heroes statues pictured with? Horses. What do horses symbolize? War and conflict. I would, I would think if today, if this vision was given to someone today, that maybe he would have seen four tanks. I don't know. That's a total guess. Um, or Black Hawk helicopter. I don't know. Anyway, I'm just joking. Let's look at the horses real quick. First, the white one in verse 2, right? Um, he comes out conquering and conquest. This is not Jesus. I'm just going to, I don't have time to explain it. This is not Jesus. We will see Jesus on a white horse, but this is not Jesus. But conquering and conquest, right? This is just geopolitical history 101. How have nations moved in and out of relationship ever since the beginning of time? Through what? Conquering and conquest, right? America is no different. Oops. The red horse, look at the red horse in verse 4. The red horse represents for us calamity and bloodshed. This one isn't hard to see. The 20th century being the bloodiest century. Catch this. The bloodiest century more than all the other centuries before it combined. That's a fact. I read it as a fact, at least. Take it for what it's worth. The black horse Economic suffering, that's what that's about. Economic suffering via, and illustrated for us, via high prices of food. The pale horse, 
brings death itself, the last great enemy of God. This is how the world suffers. And this is how the world has been suffering. Not because God says, I want to make you suffer. No, this is how the world suffers because the world is full of sin. God is not the author of sin. Who is the author of sin? We are. This is how the world suffers, right? Just a cursory reading of these horses, right, and their effects. Just a glance at your cell phones, pull up whatever news app you want that gives you the top ten headlines, and you can point to at least one horse, I think, uh, in each of those headlines. Let's just take the black horse, the economic one. I think this is an easy one, okay? We are the most advanced country in the world. I just want to throw some statistics at you. From 1979 to 2011, the income of the wealthiest 1% in this country has more than doubled. That has increased over 100% from 1979 to 2011. Do you want to know how much the income of the average American family has increased from 1979 to 2011? 6%. Over Get this, over half of the income in this country is made by the wealthiest 20% of the population. Let's go a step further. Over half of all wealth, which is more than income, over half of all wealth in this country is possessed by 3% of the population. And I want you to hear this, and I want you to hear it good. This is not a political thing, because I'm going to bet you, hands down, both of the candidates are in the top 3%. And they surround themselves with people in the top 3%. This is not a political thing. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? That does not mean the four horsemen of the end times, because the word apocalypse in Greek does not mean end times. What does it mean? It means to reveal So Jesus has conquered because he's the king and because he was slain a lamb and he is now worthy to open the seals and he's done that. And so what has been revealed to us? The four horsemen and how the world suffers. Now again, how do we understand this? Okay, we're talking about suffering here. How do we understand this? How is this happening? I, I don't know if this is what this is supposed to do to me. Well, this is what the fifth seal is about. Look at verses 9 through 11, chapter 6 there. This is what the fifth seal is all about. What we read about there is all the martyrs whose blood has been spilt, crying out for justice, crying out for the wrongs of the world to be made right. Now look at verse 11 and look at God's answer. Rest a little longer. This puts the first four in perspective for us. That's what that's doing. Rest a little longer. What is he saying to those who sit under the altar of heaven and cry out for justice and righteousness to take over the world? What is he saying? I'm doing something. And I will bring it to completion. Just wait a little longer. Now, how would you have heard that in the first century as your brothers, your sisters, and your friends, and all these people whose lives have been changed by this gospel thing about this guy from Nazareth who supposedly saved the world, and now all of a sudden the greatest country in the earth is rounding you up and killing you for it? Rest a little longer. I'm doing something about it. 
I know it's not right, and I'm going to do it something about it. That gives us a personal perspective on suffer, suffering. If the Bible tells us anything, it's that we should not be surprised when we encounter suffering. If it tells us anything, it tells us that much. But here's the thing. Suffering bothers us. And hear this. It should because it's not okay. But typically what really bothers us about suffering, usually for us where we are in life, is uncomfortability. Maybe we really can't call it suffering, but some of you very much can. But typically what really bothers us about suffering is that we assumed that if we just did everything right then right things would happen for us. And when that doesn't happen, we don't know what to do with it. But here's the problem with that line of thinking. What is, who was the only person that ever did everything right? And how did it turn out for him? He died the most unjust death in history. God showed us in Jesus that he was making wrongs right. And Jesus, the lion who is the lamb, is showing us that he is making things right. And he will not stop until he brings it all to an end. Suffering. What is this about sealing? What is this about sealing? Let's move on. This is the last one. I told you that Jesus is telling us he will not stop until he makes all wrongs right, until he brings them all to an end. That is exactly what the sixth seal is about. The sixth seal is very obviously because, again, what kind of images? Bible images. These kind of images, earthquakes, the the sky going dark, all these things are repeated throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament to symbolize the Great last day of judgment. I did not plan the would you rather. Would you rather be there um, at the end? You can see in verse 16 how these people answer that question. They don't want to be there. And so I want you to read verse 17. And I want you to get the full force of what they say. Who can stand In that day, when every wrong will be made right, who will be able to stand? Now look, here it is. You are not taking the Bible seriously, if that doesn't unnerve you. If the thought of a day when every deed that we have done is made known and will be weighed in the balances, if that day, the thought of that day does not unnerve you, you're not taking the Bible seriously. Because if you're paying attention at all, you know that the answer to the question, who can stand, is absolutely no one. No one can stand. But you see the problem. This is the problem for you and me. This is the problem for mankind, for all of history. Is we are all standing on something. We are all spending our lives, spending our days, building something, piling up dirt, whatever it is, something to stand on because we know that the foundation that we've built for ourselves is a house of cards. And we are constantly grasping at anything and everything to stand on. How do you, want to, how do you figure out what you're standing on? Here's a question. When you get down or discouraged, what is your go-to? What is the first thing that you go to when the weight of being down or discouraged gets to you? Is it a boy or a girl? Is it Netflix, right? 
What is it for you? What do you work hardest at every day because your greatest fear is if that thing were taken away from you? Is it your GPA? Is that the thing that if nothing else, I can't have this taken away? Why do you forsake friendships for the library? Why do you? Is it jokes, right? Is it what people think of you? Why do I mercilessly cut my friends down any chance I get? And I don't even think about it. It just comes out of my mouth. Is it your looks? Is it how people look at you? Why do I find myself over and over again giving my body away even though I don't really like it? What is it for you? What are you standing on? Here it is. The vision of chapter 7 that we only began. Put your eyes to it on, on it though. The vision of chapter 7 is pointing us to the ones, the only ones, who will stand in that day. And they number 144,000. Why will they stand? Because they've been sealed. They will stand because they've been sealed. See, if you see the flow of 6 into 7, what happens is all of a sudden there's an instruction that goes on. It says, stop! The sixth seal, we hear what it's going to be like. And a voice goes out and says, stop! Because the voice knows that once that happens, that's it. So stop until the 144,000 are sealed. Here's two questions that we have to ask about this number. Who are they and what is the sealing? Who are they and what are the sealing? Well, who are these people? Numbers in the Bible are symbolic. There is no code to crack. There's no addition, division, exponential, cross equation. Engineers help me out. I don't know. They're symbolic. Twelve over and over is a number used in reference to the people of God. There were twelve sons of Jacob. There were twelve tribes of Israel. There were twelve apostles, right? 144,000. What does that have to do with twelve? It's exponential and times a thousand. Meaning it's really big, right? Best definition I found what is, is the, it is the totality of the people of God before and after Christ. But what about the 144,000? That seems like an oddly precise number. Well, actually, the answer for us is right there in chapter 7. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, John hears about 144,000. But look at verse 9. He turns to look at them, and what does he see? A great multitude that no one can count. You get the picture. You know, we get really hung up with this judging God, right? But what that's telling us is, y'all, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven. A lot. Who are these people? Second, what is the ceiling? What is the ceiling? The seals, seals then serve two purposes. We talked about this a little last week. To preserve, but also to signify. For instance, take the scroll, right? You would seal a scroll so it wouldn't come unrolled. You wanted to preserve it. You didn't want it to unroll and be ruined, right? But it would also signify the author because on that seal, you would put a mark that told everybody who you were. How do we know what the seal is? Verse 14 of chapter 7, read it with me. Who are these? 
They are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There it is. I hope you see what this means. If you have ever pondered the question, who can stand? And if you have ever seen that indeed you have nothing to stand on. And you have washed yourself in the blood of the Lamb. Then you can know, you can know that you are sealed. Look, assurance, we could do a whole hour on assurance. You can know that you are sealed. Why? How? Because you stand on the merit and the blood of the Lamb. And there is nothing that can take you from it. How do we wrap this up in a nice little bow? We can't. But I hope you see the implications here. If you are in Christ, you are sealed. And if you are sealed, what that means is you are protected. And if you're protected, what that means is you are indestructible. Now, how in the world can I say that? Suffering still affects us. It does not mean that suffering cannot touch you. But hear this. It means that suffering, and again, some of you have some of the heaviest suffering that I cannot even begin to imagine what it is like to carry that around in your person every single day. And you, have, you are scared to death of the thought of ever even mentioning it in a sentence to another person. It does not mean that suffering cannot touch you, but it does mean that suffering cannot destroy you. It cannot have you because you already belong to another That's what it means. And in fact, it actually means that suffering in this life can only, get this, can only serve your ultimate good. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, it's in your handout. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is not ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. This is a man who battled crippling depression all of his adult life. This is a man who preached to thousands week upon week upon week. And there were days in his own writings and his own preaching where he said, I have no idea how I'm standing here today. He meant what he said. In 1555 England, there were two martyrs named Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. And history records that as they were tied to the stake and as the flames were being lit beneath them, that Latimer is said to have, is, is said, to have said this, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Now, was that man in that moment saying, I cannot wait for these flames to rip the flesh from my body? I guarantee you he screamed out in agony. How could he not have? What was he saying? The point's this. The point is this, Lord willing, none of you would ever come close to suffering like that. 
But the point is, you can live your life. You can face the world. You can face the four horsemen. Think about it that way. You can march against the gates of hell every single day as you leave your dorm room, as you go into the classroom, as you go to the party, as you go back home, maybe. How can you do it? Because you stand on the merit and the blood of the Lamb. In other words, you as a Christian can march straight into hell every single day because you stand upon one who has already defeated it. You remember in chapter 1, he said he holds the key to death and Hades itself. Again, I just say this to end it. I don't know if that solves the problem of evil for you tonight. I don't know if that solves the problem that for all your life you've wondered, if God really loves me, why in the world did he let that happen to me? Why in the world did he let that happen to her? Why in the world did he let that happen to him? You tell me God loves me, but why in the world would he do that? I can't solve the problem of evil for you, but I do want you to hear this. It is only the God of the Bible. It is only this God who came to this earth deliberately to put himself on the hook of human suffering. And when he did it, he absorbed the greatest evil and pain and suffering that anyone could bear in this life. The wrath of his own father. He absorbed it. It is no coincidence that when Jesus dies, what do the Gospels tell us? The sky went dark for three hours and the rocks split in two. Because what we read about there, that there in the sixth seal, what the Gospel writers are telling us is Jesus absorbed it in himself. Again, that Jesus and that God, they do not promise to give you exact reasons for the things that you have gone through. But he does promise that in Jesus, you are safe and you are secure and you are loved. And the answer to your suffering cannot be that he does not care. Actually, quite the opposite. Because you're sealed. What does it mean to be sealed? It means to wash in the blood of the Lamb. Do you have any clue what that means tonight? Let's pray. Father, sometimes we just want to make sense of the things that we feel. And you haven't promised us that. We understand it. But We need your help. Because if left to our own, if left to the suffering of this world, we're done for. You might as well throw the mountains on top of us. That's not what you've offered us. You gave us your only son. You cut him off. You cast him out. So that not a thing could snatch us from your hand. Would you help us know that tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.